In this teaching series, we're talking about how Jesus was irreligious, how he insisted that he had come to introduce us to grace and that the grace that he was describing really was grace, a gift given to us regardless of who we were or what we'd done. Now, grace and religiosity, or grace and law, as the Bible often refers to it, are not comfortable roommates. Grace is like a messy roommate that doesn't seem to care about all the hard work you did getting the place look neat and tidy. You see, the problem for the law, or religiosity, is that life isn't neat and tidy. So if God is going to come to us, he's going to need something to navigate the mess that we're making. And that's what grace is. God's unrelenting gift to us that reminds us, no matter how hard we try, we cannot get ourselves out of this mess by ourselves. Invariably, however, when you talk about grace as we encounter it in Jesus, someone comes along at some point and asks the religion question. You know this question, you've heard it before, and perhaps you've even asked it. It pretty much always begins like this. Uh, yeah, but, or, or it goes something like, I hear what you're saying about grace, but surely, and then people will go on to explain that even though Jesus might find us where we are, there surely are rules that we have to follow now that we're in. Essentially, the expectation is that Jesus finds us in the mess of trying to climb the ladder to get ourselves out of the mess. And what happens is that Jesus rescues us and gives us a new ladder to climb. Is Christianity just a list of rules like any other religion? Is it just as law-based as the rest of the world? Is God just like a boss that expects more and more out of you with the promise of more just a little further down the road? Is Jesus no different than the mall or the commercials or the street that you live in or Instagram where you're constantly baptized into a belief that if you just tried a little harder, everything would be better for you? And of course, if that's true, then not trying hard to climb that ladder is a life destined for failure and irrelevance. Is that what you think God is like? Is grace, is grace just a door into God or is grace a way of life with God? To engage with this question, let's jump into a scene in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. It happens near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And the biblical text reads like this. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like everyone spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words 
that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, like, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Like this is a sermon gone badly. Like there are thousands of pastors teaching across the world every Sunday, but there's probably not too many of them facing the risk of their own congregation, taking them outside after the teaching and, and throwing them off a cliff. Like, but, but this synagogue time, it, just, it takes a visible turn for the worst during the, the QA session. When somebody asks that very loaded question, isn't this Joseph's son? Which is to say, like, isn't this guy... Isn't this guy's dad a carpenter? With the implication being just a carpenter. Which is another way of saying, like, what's he done to justify being a rabbi? You see how quickly we get to thinking about earning? Like, what's he done to earn this? To which the solution in this passage is, is, well, the solution in this passage is to ask Jesus to do something impressive like he's done elsewhere. It's basically saying, hey, Jesus, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to play by the rules, Jesus. And we know that carpenter's sons don't make good rabbis. To which Jesus responds by reminding them of two times in the Bible when God helps out a couple of Arabs instead of any of the law-following Israelites. Like, this is inflammatory stuff. The people in the synagogue assume that their rule-following religiosity gives them priority before God. And Jesus comes along and, and, and suggests that not only does God not work like that, he maybe never has. So they, well, they try to throw him off a cliff. Like, Jesus chose racism and privilege as the subject for his first sermon in his hometown. You know, and people these days think that he was like this cute, nice man who wandered around talking about heaven. You see, the sermon, though, that Jesus teaches this day, it got controversial earlier than modern readers often realize. Because, well, actually, it actually started to go bad well before that in the teaching time. Like, as we've said before, Jesus is a rabbi, and and they were the Bible teachers of his time. But that meant something a little different in his day. To be a rabbi, the basic requirement was that you had memorized the entire Old Testament. Yep, the whole thing. Oh, and by the way, in those days, like it's not like they had chapters or verse markings, just pages and pages of text memorized. On one hand, you know, this is because only the local synagogue could afford copies of a Bible scroll. But on the other hand, it's because Scripture was so important that it deserved to be memorized. But let's be a little more transparent. 
this wasn't just true of rabbis. If you went to school at that time in that part of the world, school was basically just memorizing scripture. And the regular trips to the synagogue were mostly just to hear scripture read, which means that everyone knew the Bible. So in Jesus' time, when the preacher says, "Uh, let's read from Amos, like no one reaches for their Bible and thinks, "Uh, I'm not really sure where that is. Most people just know it, memorized. And this is quite important for us to understand this story. Because Jesus opens the Isaiah scroll and he reads the text incorrectly. Jesus, son of God, reads the Bible wrong. Well, you see, at the end of the reading, when the text tells us that all the eyes of the synagogue are looking at him, Jesus has done something really, really surprising. I think everyone knows it. The text in Isaiah 61 that Jesus has in his hands, it actually reads like this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. But when Jesus reads it, he stops halfway through the sentence, just before the comment about God's vengeance, and he rolls the scroll back up. Like, this is like an ancient Jewish mic drop. Jesus isn't going to read about God's vengeance? Like, so much of Jewish hope at that time was wrapped up in God bringing jubilee to the Jewish people and vengeance to all the people that opposed them. And Jesus turns up and refuses to read the vengeance bit Instead, he says that the bit that he has read is now fulfilled in him. Jesus is God, but he's not going to speak about vengeance or punishment or the rule breakers. Jesus, who Hebrews tells us is the exact representation of God the Father, refuses to speak about vengeance. Like, is this why the people initially say that his words are gracious? So is God maybe not like what we thought? Like this God was was helping Arabs when the Jews thought he was exclusively on their side. This God isn't bringing vengeance for some and jubilee for others. Grace is welcoming everyone in. See, but from Jesus' day to ours, I think we struggle to accept what God is like. We assume that there's a downside for the rule breakers. And as a result, we see Christianity as a welcome into just a different set of rules. But if you break those rules, you're straight back out again. We act as if it's a big bait and switch. Grace gets you in, but the rules are what will keep you in. Do we really, really believe that Jesus introduced us to a different understanding of God? Like, I I think that some of our problem comes from how we hear Jesus' words. So, for example, take the Sermon on the Mount that we, well, we discussed last week in our video. If we interpret it as a big checklist or a series of to-do requirements, then we very quickly turn an incredible sermon about God's gracious kingdom into a prescription of rules and regulations that we must keep if we want to stay on God's right side. But this sneaks up on us, and many of us don't see it coming, often because it comes in religious language or religious practice. But, you know, have you ever heard anyone explain your spiritual problems and use the word more in the solution? The moment they do this, and I make this mistake so often it's embarrassing, but the moment we do this, we've stepped off the grace train. 
Like, you've got to pray more, get more serious with God, read your Bible more, attend more, serve more, give more, 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 more. All of these things might be good, but they don't make God love you more. They don't make you more Christian. Here's the problem that I think lots of us relate to when it comes to this issue. It's, it's the problem of either or. We essentially think that we have two choices. On one hand, we can take everything seriously and try really hard to follow all the rules. And, or on the other hand, we can say that nothing really matters and it doesn't matter what you do, so just do whatever you feel like. And I think that lots of Jesus followers... We find ourselves cross-pressured like this. Each option seems wrong, but we don't really know what to do with it. What if there's a third way? What if, as Sky Jatani suggests, the Sermon on the Mount isn't a prescription of the rules for following Jesus, but rather it's a description of what life looks like if you open yourself up to God's grace? In Mark 8 and verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples that following him requires that they take up their cross. And I wonder if we've interpreted this over the years as a way of assuming that Jesus is going to welcome us in through grace, but then increase the demands on those that want to be serious. We kind of assume that the average Christian lives in grace, but the serious Christian takes up the cross and follows the rules. Here's a question. What if grace is the cross we have to carry? Like, What if grace is the difficult thing that Jesus asks of us? In a world that's so set on insisting that you earn your way to everything, what if the hardest thing that Jesus could ask of us is to live with a culture of grace in a world of law? What if grace is what makes us Jesus followers and living out that grace is what he asks of us? In a world full of rules and violence and selfishness, Jesus calls us in the creativity of grace to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus announces that not everyone that calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that verse has been a difficult one for some people, but maybe we can now make sense of it. You can call Jesus Lord, but insist on still living in a rules and regulations-based system without realizing that this is preventing you from entering into the way of grace that God has for you. To call Jesus Lord is to accept the announcement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of our teaching today. And that requires us to accept that grace is the thing that we've been called to live out. And that requires us to stop looking for the extra thing, the difficult thing, the more, that thing which will make us better. You can call Jesus Lord but you also have to step into a grace way of life because grace is the difficult thing that Jesus is asking of us. Like I realize this sounds a little backward, but there's something about us humans that means we find rules more attractive than grace. And so sometimes we don't even give grace a chance. As G.K. Chesterton wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, It's been found difficult and left untried. 
So when it comes to living in grace, have we just not tried? But why does this matter? Why do I go endlessly on and on about grace? Why do we as a church always talk about it? Is it because we think we're going to forget? Well, 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 no, although as humans we often do, but it's for another reason. Because here's the thing. If we refuse to live in grace and instead try to reinscribe the law into our way of life, if we insist on living out religiosity with rules and regulations that make you good enough, there is one universal truth that never ceases to be true. And this is it. You will fail. As St. Paul noted in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, law just increases trespass. More rules equals more failure. And this is where religiosity falls apart, in failure. When we can't handle the guilt or the shame or the pressure, when the laws are just too much and we run out of steam trying, even when it's the good things we're trying to do, the pressure, it can just be destructive. So later on in Romans, in chapter 7, a chapter that's fascinated psychologists for many, many years, Paul aligns himself with all of us when he says that as much as he tries to do the right thing, he ends up invariably doing the very thing he doesn't want to do. Of course, I didn't quite read all of Romans 5 and verse 20 to you. There's actually more to that sentence. Because what Paul says is that while the law increases the trespass, the increase of sin causes the increase of grace. Grace grows well in failure because grace begins with failure. In one of my favorite books of the past year, David Zoll, he phrases it like this. He says, what makes Christianity a religion of grace ultimately is its essential revelation of a God who meets us in both our individual and collective sin with a love that knows no bounds, the kind of love that lays down its life for its enemies. It's not a roadmap to engineering spiritual enoughness, but the glorious proclamation that on account of Christ, you and I are enough right now, right here, before we do or say anything. That is to say, Christianity at its sustaining core is not a religion of good people getting better, but of real people coping with their failure to be good. Fortunately, the God that we meet in Jesus is the God who brings good news and cuts out the bad news. So what I'm trying to say today is simply this. Grace is what Jesus has brought to us. And it's not just the way in, but it's how we live once we are in. And so this changes our, our why. Like We do an act in particular ways as Christians because of grace. So you might pray more, read your Bible more, go to church more, give more, serve more. But not because it's a rule you need to observe, but because of what grace has shaped you into. Because ultimately, that's what grace will do. It will shape you and it will form you. There's, there's a story of, a, of an old sculptor who acquired a block of marble. And he decided to carve an angel out of it. 
He was asked by someone why he chose to make an angel, to which he replied, like, I'm not going to make an angel. He said, there's an angel in there, and I'm going to find it. <laughs> there's an angel in there, and I'm going to find it. That's what grace does. It finds us, and it shapes us. And so may that grace and peace find you today.